Over the last three episodes, my guests have shared their stories. Addiction, recovery and second adolescence. Shifting identity, community and individual challenges to be overcome. We've examined three perspectives on queer identity and the ways we cope with the pressures and pleasures that come with it. Now it's time for me to share mine. This is Not In Vain, a podcast about addiction, mental health, spirituality and recovery in all its forms. My name is Honor Script, a recovered ex-addict and drag weirdo. My opinions are my own, and don't forget, listening to podcasts isn't treatment. If you're concerned about your substance use, please seek professional advice. Some people may also benefit from mutual aid groups. So, hi, welcome back everybody to Not In Vain. I know we've had a couple of weeks between episodes um, and I'll have more information about what's happening with the podcast later on, but rest assured there'll be plenty more to come. Um, so we are now into June, so happy Pride Month. Um, for anyone watching on video, you can probably see I finally figured out how to use a virtual background. And so I went for trans colors as well as my makeup. So I am definitely in the Pride Month spirit. Um, and it's appropriate for what we've got to talk about today because genuinely, completely through coincidence, I ended up with three interviews with amazing queer guests last month. And so now I get to do the roundup in Pride Month. Um, and Casey's episode actually went live on the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia, which again made it look like I was super organised and I genuinely forgot that that day was coming until, until I opened Facebook that morning. So I was super happy with that. Um, so the three episodes that I'm going to be sort of linking into today were my interview with Michael, who was talking about chemsex and kink and how that affects uh, a, a lot of people, but primarily gay and bisexual men. Um, it's a, a lifestyle that tends to draw them in more than others. Um, we then spoke to Katie. Uh, Katie is the chair of B, which is a trans charity based here in the Northeast. And she was talking about the issues that the community faces, as well as a lot about her own story and how her trans identity intersected with difficulties with mental health, addiction and, and vulnerability. Um, and finally, I talked to Stevie. Uh, Stevie was talking about her experience of someone who has previously identified as trans and now doesn't really do labels, um, but falls broadly within the spectrum of gender non-conforming and is in abstinence-based recovery following a, a period of experience of addiction. So they were a very diverse bunch, but also there was a lot that linked them together, a lot of really common threads running through all three episodes. Um, so rather than breaking this episode down into three sections to examine any of those issues individually, I thought I would talk about my experiences that link into all of them and tie them all together, um, the ways that I related to what the three speakers were saying. Um, and it gives me an opportunity to share a piece of my story that I don't necessarily get to talk about at length very often, it just doesn't always come up. Um, maybe share some things that answer questions people have been scared to ask me and open the door for further conversations, for further knowledge. You know, I've had a, a few experiences over the last few years and, and one quite recently that's really made me aware of how many people genuinely are really willing and open and want to learn more about how they can support people with different life experiences than them and just don't always know how to ask those questions or don't even know what questions they should be asking. You know, 
we're all ignorant of what we're ignorant of, right? We, we don't always know what we need to even start to do to find out. So this is here for the curious. Um, and if you're not curious, then I hope you'll still find something to enjoy about it. You know, I think it's always, for me, I always find it interesting to hear more about the life experiences that made people who they are today. I, I kind of, my view of it is we all kind of start with a more or less blank slate and then the world fucks us up and we fuck ourselves up, but the world also heals us and we heal ourselves. And what comes out at the end of it is, is this kind of amazing Frankenstein in the best way possible. And that's very much my vibe. So people always kind of want to know about where it started with trans stuff. I'm guilty of that myself. When you're structuring an interview, the first thing you want to ask about is where did it all begin? Um, but my childhood in terms of gender identity stuff isn't that interesting. Um, I, I think looking back, there are things I can identify as maybe the beginnings of some gender identity confusion. Um, I went through a period of time where I had some physical dysphoria with the lower part of my body, but not to an excessive kind of distracting, distressing, you know, really problematic degree, just a kind of vague confusion about why things were the way they were with parts of my body. Um, but I also had a lot of general body image issues at the time as well. So it's very hard to unpick, you know, what was just me not liking my body anyway, and what was me experiencing dysphoria or incongruence around my assigned or biological sex characteristics. Um, and I didn't struggle too much with gendered clothing or roles because as you can see now, I'm, I'm still very femme, you know, um, a lot of the time, at least not all the time. And I didn't struggle, you know, I liked a lot of, you know, I was assigned female at birth and I liked a lot of girls toys. I liked a lot of girls clothes. Um, I didn't necessarily make friends with girls easily, but I think I didn't make friends with anyone all that easily. So, um, that wasn't necessarily a huge issue in itself. Um, I was a, a bit of an odd child and I think that was a much bigger issue than anything that was going on with my gender. Um, so yeah, it, it didn't really manifest super early for me. And we kind of briefly touched on that when I was speaking to Katie, you know, where she mentioned that she had a very clear understanding or at least, uh, a kind of drive to figure out what was going on with her gender from very, very young. Um, but she did acknowledge that's, that's the kind of expectation of trans people, but it's just not always the case. Um, I know people who have just come out of the womb practically knowing exactly who they are and who they want to become. Um, and I've known other people who transitioned very, very late on in life and genuinely it wasn't even on the horizon for them until that point. And everyone else is kind of somewhere in the middle you know, where we kind of had an inkling or we had a, a thought that we could push down or we figured things out slowly over a period of time or we've understood more in hindsight, you know, it's everyone experiences that in very much their own way. Um, but mine, mine sort of really started to kick in more in my teens. Um, when I heard a little bit more about trans people, but not about non-binary people. So just to give a little terminology catch up for anyone who is confused. Um, trans is an umbrella term. Not every non-binary person identifies with the term trans, but every non-binary person has the right to identify as trans. It's a term that means that your gender assigned at birth does not match with the gender that you see yourself as, or at least it doesn't match with it 100% or 100% of the time. 
So someone assigned female at birth who feels like a girl sometimes, but sometimes feels like they're not a girl, would fall under the trans umbrella because there's not a perfect aligned match there. Um, someone who was assigned male at birth and now sees themselves as female all of the time is also trans or falls under that umbrella because their assigned gender and their, their true gender aren't aligned at all. Um, so it covers a lot of experiences. Um, what it doesn't necessarily cover is people who are gender non-conforming or who enjoy things like the art of drag or who cross-dress for fun or, or things of that nature. Um, if they feel that there is some difference between their assigned gender and the gender they experience themselves as, then they are entitled to claim that term. But a lot of people who present themselves in a gender non-conforming way, it is just costume or it is fashion decisions or it's aesthetics it's not about how they identify it's just about how they like to be seen in the world which is kind of a separate thing um although the two communities obviously have overlap and share some of the same problems and, and challenges in life um as you can see i i like drag i dabble in drag i'm learning drag um but drag is very separate from my trans identity the two sort of feed off each other a little bit but they are not the same thing you know there's trans and cis people who do drag and there's trans and cis people who don't do drag you know it's they're not the same um sorry this is su probably super basic to some people watching but to other people it'll be like mind-blowing because it doesn't get talked about in some circles so it's a tricky balance to get right um so yeah i started to question my gender a little bit more in my teens but as i said i only really knew about trans men and trans women i didn't know that non-binary was a thing um, so I didn't feel great about the idea of growing up to be a woman, but I didn't find the idea of becoming a man instead any more appealing, possibly slightly less, because as I said, I, I have quite a lot of feminine tastes, um, and I still saw the world in a very kind of binary way. Um, so I just kind of shoved the feelings down the way that you do when something is uncomfortable or confusing and you're a confused kid anyway. Um, and then it came up a lot more strongly when I was about 19 and I learned about non-binary identities for the first time. And then it just wasn't the right time in my life. I didn't have the courage to really embrace that. There were things in my life that I feared I would lose if I went down that road. And at the time, the fear of losing those things was more powerful than the fear of not kind of being myself. I, I felt able to compromise in that way at that time. And to be honest, a big way of how I coped with that was by really throwing myself really hard into femininity. And I think there was an element of trying to push the trans out of me with that. Um, but I also think there is a real psychological kind of armor that comes with putting on heavy makeup and wearing wigs and hair extensions and having cosmetic enhancements done to your, your physical body and becoming this sort of living doll. Um, it's a psychological armor I still use now. I still feel more confident and more powerful when I do drag or when I do some kind of heavy makeup look or even just make a special effort with my appearance. I think it's one of those things that puts up a barrier between you and the world and done in moderation that can be super healthy and can give you that little boost to try new things. Um, but when you live behind that mask every single day for about five or six years, uh, it's not great for you. And I think that's where a lot of mental health problems and addiction issues that have been quietly ticking away in the background started to build and started to gather some strength. 
Um, and during that period of time is when I discovered that alcohol was not the only drug and it wasn't my favorite drug. Um, I very quickly discovered that opiates fixed a lot of things. Um, and at that stage it was, I don't think there's such thing as a soft opiate, but it was, uh, it was like prescription pain pills. It wasn't the stuff that I got into later. Um, and I had a bit of a messy time with that, but not as messy as it could have been or as messy as it later got. Um, and there's a reason I was drawn to opiates all the way through, you know, from the first time to the last opiates are painkillers. And I was in both physical and psychological pain for a, a huge amount of my life. And a big part of that, that I can't ignore was because of this disconnect between the gender that I am and the gender that I'd spent my whole life being told that I was and the process of figuring that out unlearning all of the transphobia that I'd grown up with. And that's not saying, you know, pointing the finger saying my parents were transphobic or my school teachers were transphobic or my school friends were transphobic. Um, probably all of those people were to some degree. And so was I, because when you grow up in a culture that values trans people as lesser and sees us as frauds or as a danger to others or as mentally ill, which I mean, there's nothing wrong with being mentally ill either, but again, two separate things. Um, everyone is, is just being marinated in that hate. Um, and you don't have to be a hateful person to absorb some of it. In fact, I think most of the people who absorb it are at heart, good, well-intentioned people. But if nothing comes along to challenge that perception, that perception is all that you have. So I was as transphobic as anybody else when I realized I was trans and I had to take some time to unlearn that and and it was easier to learn not to hate other trans people than it was to learn not to hate me. And it was easier to deal with that once I even figured out that was the problem. Um, so that was a big part of the pain that I was trying to kill with opiates, but it wasn't the only thing, you know, I, I would have had some issues even if I wasn't trans, definitely. Um, there was some childhood trauma stuff that took me the best part of three decades to really come to terms with and heal from. Um, there's a few just wonky things with my brain that I don't fully understand. A psychiatrist might find interesting. I've been told of various people that I almost certainly have ADHD, that I almost certainly have BPD. Um, I've been told by a, a professional that she was absolutely certain I have PTSD. She just wasn't in the right role to, um, to diagnose it. So there's loads of kind of labels you could put on what my brain does. Um, but I, I just prefer to say it's a bit wonky you know, nothing it's doing is causing me any distress these days. Um, so I don't worry overly much about it, but there were times in my life where it did cause me a lot of problems. And again, that was a pain that I could fix with, with drugs. Um, and in terms of physical pain, I suffered from chronic pain from as young as I can remember, probably about five or six up until last year. Um, which never got kind of diagnosed or fully understood, but I do believe was trauma related, you know, trauma can be carried in the body and can manifest in physical symptoms. And it went overnight when I fixed, when I found a way to fix my trauma, um, which to me pretty much confirms what I thought about it for a while, that it was a, a mental response, a physical response to mental pain. Um, so that was how my love affair with opiates started and and why I'm not sure if it's ever completely finished, you know, even though I don't take them anymore and I certainly hope I never will. I think that when you find something that fixes you like that, even though I don't need fixed anymore, 
it's hard to completely divorce yourself from the positive association, even though there was much more negative about it than there was positive. Um, it's a kind of very, very, very scary magic. Um, and yeah, I'll probably edit that out because it's a little bit personal, but uh, there's a part of me that I think will always be a little bit in love with heroin, um, just from a very safe distance these days. So yeah, I, um, you know, my, my teens and early twenties, um, I was still kind of working through a lot of stuff around my gender. And then I really hit a crisis point with it, probably largely because I was working in the sex industry at the time. So sex work is a whole other topic, one that I'll probably have to dig into deeper when I can dedicate the time to it that it deserves. Um, but the short of it is that my experience of sex work doesn't fit into either of the kind of classic stereotypes. You know, I was not exploited, abused, forced into it in any way. I I didn't feel this sense of shame or horror or anything like that of what I was doing. I, I didn't feel like it was a negative, terrible, awful, immoral experience that I was having. Um, I also was not, you know, your um, kind of typically uh, empowered, super wealthy, um, high class escort who was just, you know, drinking bottles of champagne every night and being paid thousands of pounds an hour and, you know, being driven all over the country in expensive cars and things, you know, it wasn't glamorous either. Um, there's a whole world of people between those two points who do sex work for a variety of reasons and have quite often very mixed feelings about it the way that probably all of us do about all of our jobs at times, you know, like who hasn't had a job that they absolutely loved, you know, in the middle of Wednesday afternoon and by Thursday morning, they're hating it. You know, it's, it's a job and uh, people are going to have different feelings about that and, and different experiences of that. Um, but the part of it that started to become a real issue for me was that it is a job where the sort of barbified persona that I had created was profitable and the me that was starting to try to claw their way out through my skin was not profitable. And I couldn't really play with my gender or dabble in my gender without walking away from that line of work. Um, you know, it wasn't something I could do as a slow, gradual process of exploration. I kind of hit a wall where I was just like, I cannot do the lacy lingerie and the high heels and the full face of makeup anymore. Ironically enough, I could easily do all of those things now. I love those things. Um, but I couldn't allow them to be who I was every day. I, I couldn't do it. I was literally in the middle of a work trip away and I'd seen a client. The client himself was no problem at all. Absolutely lovely. No issues with him. And just as he walked out the hotel room, I just, my brain just went, you're never going to do this again. And I, I checked out the hotel. I packed my bags. I went home and I, I never did it again. I just, it just wasn't me anymore. Um, which was really destabilizing and scary because it had been, um, it had been pretty much my whole life for five years. You know, when you're self-employed, you don't get a lot of time off. You can't, can't do it. So, um, it was like, I didn't know who I was anymore and I didn't know what my gender was anymore. And I'd really committed to figuring that out. Um, so I did, and it, it was a process. Um, it's still a process. I think, you know, quite often now, if, if people ask me how I identify, I mean, non-binary is a good umbrella for it, but more specifically than that, I don't know. 
I don't know if I see my gender as completely a gender, you know, there's just no gender identity there at all. I don't know if I see myself as kind of female aligned or I'm kind of male aligned or gender fluid. Um, I don't know. I've tried all of those labels on. I've given them all a good like test drive and sometimes they feel good for a bit and then sometimes they just don't vibe with me anymore. And I've realized I'm reaching a point where I just really embrace the chaos, <laughs> you know, like I don't know what gender I am. It's fine. Like for years, I didn't know what my star sign was because I wasn't into astrology, you know, and now I, I find astrology more relevant than gender. <laughs> it's just the things that matter to us change over time, you know, and, and the things that are relevant change. And maybe for some people knowing what gender they are is really, really important, whether they're trans or not. I don't really need to know what my gender is. I'm quite comfortable with being confused about it. Um, I, I'm confused about a lot of things. It's just one of the many, many things in this weird, big, exciting world that I don't get. Um, and I don't need to, but yeah, when I first came out, I was super obsessed with figuring out the exact right label for me. Like, um, I always knew non-binary somewhere was right. Um, I identified as gender flux for a while, which is an identity where you have a kind of single specific gender. In my case, I saw that gender is male, but some days it's kind of like you've got a bottle of it and some days the bottles fill right up to the top and some days the bottle's got like three drops in the bottom and it, it varies. Um, so it's sort of a spectrum between a single gender and being genderless uh, or, or gender neutral. Um, and that felt like a good fit for a while because I felt like I was either no gender or male, but I never felt any, any desire to see myself as female. Um, once I had got far enough away from being forced to be female or, or feeling forced to be female, I found that I quite like trying that on for size sometimes as well. So I, I dabbled, I guess, with the idea of being gender fluid. Um, and then went through a period of time where the masculinity really asserted itself again. And I was telling people, you know, I'm technically non-binary, but pretty much a trans man. I'm like 99% male, 1% something else. Um, and I was, you know, at this point I went on to testosterone. I was on waiting lists for all the surgeries, every surgery going, I wanted the full works. Um, and I don't think I'd have regretted any of those surgeries if they'd gone ahead, but I also don't think they were all completely necessary for me to be comfortable in my skin. And I'm glad that for various reasons, life got in the way and, and I had a little bit more time to think about what I actually want for my transition, medically speaking. Um, my experiences of coming out were actually largely quite good. Um, the people that I kind of lost or drifted away from were mostly kind of friends of friends or acquaintances or people that I wasn't hugely close to. And this was also during a time for my life where I had extremely chaotic mental health. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I've been told a few times I may have BPD. I still don't know if I do or not, but, um, one of the characteristics of that, that people have identified in me is, um, this sort of way of seeing any minor conflict with a friend as a deal breaker. So someone says one thing that pisses me off and they go from my favorite person to the worst person in the world. I've done a lot of work around that because I learned after a while that I, was losing all the people I valued and I was doing it on like a monthly basis. I would just have got settled with some new friends and then I'd cut them all off and you can't live like that. It's, it's so just, I mean, it's not nice for other people to be treated that way for a start, 
but it's also it starts to really destroy you over time because you have nobody who's known you for a long time um you don't have anyone that you have you know childhood memories with or who was at your wedding or you know like who's been there with you through like major life events five or ten years ago um and that can be really destabilizing to your personality as well because you feel like you don't have anything to anchor you to who makes you you so I, I tried to address those behaviors, but at the time I hadn't. So I, I really didn't have any old friends or super close friends or anyone that I felt I couldn't do without. So it was quite easy to basically be like, this is me now, like it or lump it. Um, and, and there was no one that I lost over that that I missed, rightly or wrongly. Um, with my family, it was a little bit tricky at first, and it was just purely down to lack of understanding and them feeling really kind of blindsided by information that they hadn't seen coming. I think if I'd been your kind of classic tomboy and had always wanted short hair and wanted to wear boys' clothes and wanted boys' toys and all of that, and then I'd said, yeah, I'm a guy, I think my parents at that stage in their life would have probably just got it, you know, like that. They would have been fine with it. Um, but I think because, you know, I, I was the kid who would, like, scream with excitement if I saw, like, a frilly dress being presented to me, like, it just seemed to come out of nowhere, you know? Um, and the fact that I used they, them pronouns uh, was challenging because they weren't used to that and didn't quite get it for a little while. Um, but we had, you know, a few arguments and we had a few heart to heart discussions and we've had a lot of time and those things work themselves out with, with all of those bits of input. Um, just a little aside to talk about pronouns things they've come up because again, this is something that a lot of people really struggle with and it's really not that hard. So for the majority of people, if you were talking about a stranger whose gender you don't know, you probably use they pronouns already. Um, or if, if you personally don't, you at least will have heard people saying it all the time and it won't throw you. Um, so you see someone walking down the street and they're 300 yards away and you can't see their face or their body shape or anything really. Um, but you can see that they have got a big bright pink hat on and you turn to your friend and go, oh my God, look at their hat, that's so pink. Yeah, like, I mean, maybe you wouldn't say that specific thing, but that's not a comment that would seem out of place or weird or confusing to say, right? Um, it's the same for me. I don't know what gender I am, and neither do you. Trust me, you don't, because, <laughs> uh, you know, experts can't figure that one out. So that's why you use they pronouns for me. Um, that's not to say that everyone who uses they pronouns don't know what their gender is. Uh, just in a lot of cases, he doesn't fit and she doesn't fit, and they is a really great alternative. It's one that we all know how to use already. Um, there are what's called neo-pronouns, which are gender-neutral pronouns that have been invented as a way for non-binary people to have kind of specific pronouns that suit them. Um, Z is a relatively common one, and I've heard per as well, which I quite like, but seems to have dropped out of use a little bit. Um, but there's quite a few of them around. Um, they are less intuitive to use because we've not grown up hearing them and using them, and it does take practice. Um, you don't need to be, make a big drama of that. If someone has an unusual pronoun set, they know that it's going to be tricky for you, and they're not going to scream in your face if you make mistakes. It's about just correcting yourself and moving on and not making it into a, a big drama where everyone's kind of more focused on it than they need to be. Um, in terms of he and she, some non-binary people use those pronouns because they feel aligned enough to one gender or another to be comfortable with it, or they just like it for some reason, you know, that's fine too. 
In terms of binary trans people, uh, trans men will almost always want to be called he and trans women almost always want to be called she. I say almost because people are complicated and there's exceptions to every rule, especially when it comes to gender. Um, but if you're not sure what pronouns someone use, always best to ask, always best to ask. Because even if it's a slightly uncomfortable conversation, it is much, much better than getting it wrong and potentially really upsetting somebody and potentially getting them quite upset with you, which is also uncomfortable. Okay, um, so yeah, like I said, my coming out process was, by the standards of a lot of trans people, really not that bad. Um, it, the most destabilizing thing about the process was having to change jobs. Um, and around that time, I'd actually been abstinent from all substances for about three years, um, following my little issues with opiates. Um, I kind of given myself a good scare and decided to step away from, from drugs. Um, but the way that I'd done that hadn't been super healthy. I had pretty much just isolated myself. I figured if I didn't go to bars, didn't go to parties, didn't have friends, um, then I wouldn't get high and I wouldn't get drunk and life would be okay. And I didn't get high and I didn't get drunk, but life was not okay. <laughs> I was, um, I was slowly losing my mind. Maybe not that slowly, depending on who you ask. Um, and leaving the sex industry and going out looking for a normal job meant that I had to deal with things like office culture, co-workers, work stress, um, which I'm not saying there was no stress in sex work, but it's a very different kind of stress when you're your own boss and can choose to take the day off and stay in bed and deal with it that way um, than when you have to be at work for 8 a.m to get screamed at down the phone by customers. <laughs> you know, it's it's a different kind of stress um, and one that I didn't deal with as well. Um, so before long in that job, I was going out drinking and taking illicit drugs with my coworkers. And within about a year of starting to do that, I was using heroin, which I hadn't used before. Um, and that's a long story and the focus of this one is gender identity but there was a certain inevitability to me using heroin I think it was something that I'd kind of seen coming for me um dramatic as that sounds for a long time it, it was kind of the end game shit that I was always headed towards and I think it was a life experience that I needed to have to know that it wasn't what I wanted I think if I'd never taken it, I would have always had that question of, would my life be better if I was on heroin? And now I know categorically that my life is not better. It's not remotely okay when I'm using heroin. Um, heroin had a way of burning down everything around me and doing it very, very, very quickly. Um, but it was an answer to a question that I'd had since I was in my early teens. Um, and I'm the kind of person who needs to find out things like that for myself. And I also think that I found it at a time of my life where I maybe couldn't have survived some of the things I was feeling without it. And it kept me alive long enough to find a better way to handle that stuff. Um, so still, still complicated feelings there. <laughs> you know, I don't think that'll ever change. Um, so it was a very chaotic time. You know, I was going through the kind of resurgence of my addiction at the same time as I was going through medical transition, uh, which for me involved taking hormones, um, testosterone specifically. And when you take testosterone and you're assigned female at birth, you in very, very basic terms that doctors would probably nitpick and say, I'm like really off base, but it's basically you're going through 
puberty of the variety that boys generally go through at the same time as going through the menopause. Um, so it is wild emotionally um, and physically. You know, I'm, my body was changing. Sometimes it seemed like on a daily basis, my voice was up and down. Um, my moods were crazy. My sex drive was crazy. I was sweaty. I was spotty. I was growing hair everywhere. <laughs> you know, it was, um, it was a wild, wild time. Um, and along with that came what we talked about on, on a couple of the episodes recently, the kind of feeling of second adolescence, the feeling that I had been shutting the real me in a box for 25 years and I hadn't had a chance to live my life. You know, my real, my first adolescence had been stolen from me through going through the wrong puberty, through being in the middle of a mental health crisis for all of it, um, through not having people around me that I had much in common with, you know, the people I went to school with, I'm sure a lot of them were great, but there were no openly queer kids. There was not really a lot of alternative kids. There wasn't anyone that I was really massively drawn to. Um, and suddenly here I was in my mid twenties, living as myself for the first time in my life with access to credit cards and drug dealers and being able to get into bars without finding a fake ID. Um, and I felt like a kid in a sweet shop. I was going to try everything, do everything, experience everything. Um, I was going to live fast and die young. And I was, you know, still, even though I was feeling better about myself than I ever had, I'd been actively suicidal since I was five and that hadn't just gone away overnight. So I didn't really care if my newfound freedom killed me in a couple of years. I just wanted to make sure I'd done everything worth doing first. And, um, to be fair, I probably did. I probably did do everything worth doing and a lot of things that weren't worth doing. So a lot of people will probably be wondering like what kind of idiot doctors would be treating someone who was treating themselves like that, you know, who was prescribing me medication, who was putting me forward for these surgeries. Um, the answer is some very professional, intelligent, wonderful doctors at the gender clinic who I lied to <laughs> barefaced for about a year and a half. Um, it's one of the skills that you learn in addiction is how to be a really, really good, really convincing liar. Um, I, I was very good at telling little tiny snippets of the truth to make it seem like I was a really honest person and then just talking 20 minutes of straight bullshit following that. So I, you know, a few months into being with the gender clinic, I sat down with one of the doctors and, um, they just put me forward for surgery. And I said, look, I just want to mention, I use, um, I use a little bit of ketamine just, you know, a little bit occasionally. Um, and I know that it's an anesthetic and I'm worried that it might, you know, affect the, um, the anesthetic that I'm going to be given in hospital. So I just thought I should tell you now. And they were like, oh, bless you. Thank you for being honest with us. You know, a, occasional recreational drug use shouldn't be an issue, but you really should stay off it for about a month before and after surgery. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you for being so understanding. And then I went home and, you know, injected a quarter of a gram of speed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and probably some heroin as well and, and then probably bought some crack it was just like um that little sort of crumb of truth had, had thrown them off the scent of what was really going on for me um and and it all came to a head because i attempted suicide by heroin overdose um and when you do that any doctors currently working with you tend to hear about it pretty sharp um and then to top that all off, I went into the emergency appointment. They called with me to talk about it. And I went in on 200 milligrams of MDMA, I think, 
which I had injected into my foot immediately before the appointment and then threw up on myself um, and then went in and told them I was fine. <laughs> which uh, at that point, it doesn't matter how good a liar you are, they will see through it. Um, so that kind of unraveled all of the lies and and it changed how my treatment was going. Um, you know, it did change some things and and it was right that it changed those things. Um, and they were really, really good and wanted to work with me to help me get back on track with my transition goals. Um, and the plan was that I needed to either get off drugs or get stable on an opiate substitute and not be using anything else. And then they would look at getting me into surgery. Um, and that maybe would have been what happened if I hadn't gone into recovery the way that I did. Um, but I crashed out of my addiction and crashed into very, very obsessive abstinence-based recovery. And that's not me saying that NA is obsessive. That's saying that I was obsessive because, because I needed to make my recovery as all or nothing as my addiction at that time. Um, because my addiction had got to such a messy crisis point where I was completely out of control of everything I was doing, really didn't know what was going on, wasn't making any conscious decisions at all, completely running on autopilot, and my autopilot was broken as fuck. So it would just take me off at 11 o'clock at night to buy a bag of Coke because I was feeling anxious and I thought that would help. It's like I wasn't even using the drugs correctly. Um, I'd reached a point where I really didn't know what I wanted. I just knew I had to be taking something. Um, so yeah, my my approach to recovery was as all or nothing as my drug use had been at first. It was like, okay, so I cannot have painkillers in hospital. That's, that's just a hard no. Um, I can't trust myself to deal with pain without wanting to take drugs. So I can't have surgery and not accept painkillers either. You know, it was just like, the whole idea of surgery just seemed super overwhelming and terrifying at the time. And to be fair, with how messed up my head was at the time, I do think it would have been a super high risk thing to do. So I made the decision to cancel all of the surgery that I'd been put forward for and remove myself, not just from the surgical waiting lists, but also from the gender service. Um, they did offer to keep me on, on their books while I kind of figured out how I wanted to proceed. But I'm very, very aware of the waiting times, which I talked about with Katie. Um, the idea of me sitting open to their service for a year or two years or longer, um, using up a slot that someone in crisis might really need didn't sit well with me. And, and from a selfish perspective as well, when you're on their books, you kind of have to go in for these regular appointments for a, a sort of checkup to see how you're doing. Um, probably to avoid people sneakily going off the rails like I had. So I didn't want to be dragging myself along to the gender clinic once every three months to say, yeah, I'm still alive. Everything's cool. Um, so I, I just, I, I left. Um, and I'm now back on the waiting list to go in to be seen again um, for, I would like to get the chest reconstruction surgery. That's still really important to me. That's been consistent for a very, very long time. Um, feeling dis a discomfort with my chest has been a, a permanent thing since puberty. And I didn't really understand what that discomfort was at first and, and thought maybe it was because I was small chested and wanted to be bigger and did something rather drastic, expensive and painful about that. And then had to drastically expensively and painfully reverse that later. Um, but yeah, there's the chest area has always been a bad place for me. 
Um, so I really want to get that sorted out, even though it doesn't bother me the way that it used to, it's still not me. Um, I don't want genital surgery anymore. Um, I've completely made peace with the way that my body is there now. Um, and if I had a magic wand and could just like change it at a whim, I might feel differently. I'm not sure. Um, but there's nothing going on in my head that I feel needs to be fixed so much that I'm willing to go through major surgery to do it. Um, so that's where I'm at with that. And there's a few other little bits and pieces that I want to chat to the gender clinic about, get a little bit of support figuring out, but, but those are the kind of big decisions that I've already come to. Um, in terms of my hormones, that's been an interesting journey because I was absolutely certain that I wanted to go on testosterone. And then I was equally absolutely certain last year that I wanted to stop being on testosterone. And I don't regret either of those decisions. Um, both of them are, have been a huge part of making me who I am now. So testosterone, it has kind of two broad categories of effects. It's got permanent effects, which even if you stop taking it, will never fully reverse, um, won't even reverse at all in most cases. And then it's got a load of temporary effects as well, which pretty much as soon as you come off it, they start undoing themselves. And what I found over the five years I was on testosterone was that the majority of the effects I liked were permanent and the majority of the effects that I didn't like were temporary. So it started to, to become quite obvious quite quickly that it probably wasn't going to be something I stayed on lifelong. I stayed on it for as long as I did because I would have liked to get a full beard. Um, and I was told that you get more beard development up to about year five on testosterone. So I stayed on it for five years to see how much beard I could get without also losing all the hair on my head. Um, and October last year, I was starting to get a bald spot on the back of my head and I still hadn't got a full beard. And I thought, this is probably the time now, if I still want to keep any of my hair, I'm probably never going to have a good beard. So I just accepted that I can always glue one on. <laughs> um, and because the bald spot was quite a recent thing, it's actually fully recovered. Look, I have this luscious head of hair, <laughs> but I also have real hair. I have real hair. It's coming back. So I'm super happy about that. Um, so yeah, but the, uh, the other things I didn't like on testosterone were I was super sweaty the whole time I was on it, which is terrible when you're a pole dancer. Like I was just falling on my head every summer, every year. Um, I was always having skin breakouts. Um, my sex drive was crazy high, which is inconvenient because I'm celibate by choice. So that was just annoying, um, and distracting. <laughs> so I was quite glad to see the back of that one. Um, and I didn't love the the way that it distributes fat on your body. So basically the reason that typically men and women have totally different body shapes is almost hundred percent hormone driven, um, and can be changed by changing your hormones later in life. So when you think of kind of typical male body, uh, it's like, they'll have like quite small, narrow hips, quite a flat bum, quite a straight up and down sort of square waist and wider shoulders. Um, and that is all to do with the ease where they build muscle and where fat is distributed. So men tend to carry more internal fat in their abdomen, which gives them the thicker waist. Um, where women typically will carry more fat on their bum and their thighs and kind of the sides of their hips, um, obviously in the breasts, um, and will have kind of more subcutaneous fat in general, which even when women are quite muscular is why they generally have like a softer look with a little bit less definition. Um, 
Those are obviously typical. You can overcome all of that stuff with the right diet and training if you choose to. Um, and there's natural variations between even cisgender men and women that mean that they don't always conform to those body types. But basically, when you start taking testosterone, you're going to move from wherever you're at on that spectrum further and further towards the typically male. Um, and there were things I liked about that. I like being muscular, but I can eat protein and lift weights now. It's fine. Um, and I, I liked, um, I liked the shape of my face more on testosterone. I had a more masculine jawline and more masculine cheekbones. Um, but I find it easier to keep my weight low when I'm not on testosterone. And that gives me my cheekbones and my jawline back. So, you know, it's, it's easier to fix the things that I'm not keen on naturally when I'm not on testosterone than it is to fix the things testosterone does that I don't like while I'm on it. Um, the things I loved about testosterone were my new voice. I do not have the deepest, most manly voice. I'm as camp as Christmas, but it's a lot deeper than it used to be. And this is where I like it. This is where I wanted it to be. Um, I love that I've got loads of body hair now. I am an unashamedly hairy drag weirdo. Um, and I, I love that. I absolutely love that. I would have liked a little bit more chest hair, but that wasn't going to happen. But I've got like a super hairy belly, legs, a bit on my back, which I like. Most people don't. Most people think back hair's gross. I own it. I'm happy with it. Um, so yeah, I was really happy with my voice and my body hair and they won't reverse. Um, the only temporary thing that I really didn't want to go away when I came off testosterone was it would have been amazing if I never had another period again. Um, not being that lucky. So one of the things I want to chat to the gender clinic about potentially is hysterectomy, but it is really drastic surgery for the sake of four annoying days a month. Um, I, I'm not decided yet on that one. Um, so yeah, I'm quite comfortable talking about the medical side of stuff. It's one of those things that a lot of trans people don't like to be asked about. And to be fair, I don't like it if I meet someone and the first thing they ask me is if I've had the surgery yet or like what my body looks like or what genitals I was born with. It's like, just please fuck off. <laughs> like, it's so rude if that is the first thing people ask. But if you're a close friend or if we're talking about this stuff and it comes up naturally, I'm really an open book with it. Um, whether that's a boundary issue I need to work on, or if it's just that I'm really comfortable about it, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. Um, but I'm super happy to answer any questions about my own experience and feelings around medical transition. I think partly as well, because I find it a really interesting subject. Like it was super interesting to learn about how much of our body is controlled by hormones and then to personally experience it. I think maybe it tapped into a little bit of the same mentality that made me an addict, you know, where I just love treating my own body as a mad science experiment. I still do. I still do. Like, um, now more my mind, I guess. I've I've got super into kind of self-improvement and changing who I am as a person to fit my goals and things like that. And And again, I'm just now experimenting with my brain instead of my body. I just think... You know, as far as we know for sure, we only get one life on this planet and I want to find out what I can do with it. I want to find out what the limits are and I want to find out what, you know, what happens if I change this thing in my environment or in my conditions. Um, and the stuff that happens is always mad and wonderful and exciting and new. And yeah, I don't regret any part of my gender journey. In the same way, I'm not sure I regret any part of my addiction journey apart from the parts of it that harmed other people. I don't regret that I nearly destroyed myself because I completely rebuilt myself to my own design out of the broken pieces, mentally and physically. 
Um, and I don't believe I would be anywhere near as confident or self-assured or happy with myself if I hadn't done that. I, I wouldn't feel like I had as much agency as I do. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend the life path I've been on because I could name a hundred different times where it could have killed me. But I'm still here and I wouldn't want to be anybody else. I, I would never want to be anybody else. A lot of the anybody else's out there are amazing, but there's only one of me and I like this one. <laughs> so I've talked a lot about my gender identity stuff and that journey. Um, but there's no way to talk about how my gender, the journey intersected with my addiction without also talking about how it intersected with my recovery. And I debated talking about this because I know that not everyone has the same experience of this and I didn't want to, I don't want my podcast to be defined by what I am criticizing or opposing. I want it to be about talking about what works and what's helpful and what's useful, um, which is why I welcome guests, whatever their personal path of recovery is and, and how they're doing that. Um, I still feel there are a lot of useful things that I learned from being in Narcotics Anonymous that I still use on a daily basis. You know, I'm certainly not on program and no one would ever say that I was, but, but there are definitely things that I learned that are still useful. I don't want this to become my NA bashing soapbox. You know, um, when I'm drunk and around close friends, then you'll see me bash. Then I sometimes need a little vent. I'll readily admit that, but, but that's not the whole of my opinion. That's a part of my opinion that needs an outlet at times. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to come out and say it. There is a huge problem with transphobia in Narcotics Anonymous and from what I've seen in other 12 step fellowships as well. And the root of that is the traditions. Um, one of the traditions, which are the kind of guiding principles of 12 step recovery, uh, states that Narcotics Anonymous or insert the fellowship of your choice here has no opinion on outside issues. Um, and there's some good intentions behind that, which I can really understand and respect. You know, if Narcotics Anonymous was to officially endorse a certain political party or a certain religion um, or a certain method of treatment, you know, or anything, anything like that, then immediately any members who disagreed with that viewpoint would be less likely to engage with the program and might miss out on some really important healing work it could provide for them. Um, and it would also draw draw NA into, you know, nasty kind of public controversy, picking it to pieces, um, which again would damage their, their image. So I get it, but it has become horribly misused because the identities of the members of your organization, that's not an outside issue. That is a fucking inside issue. Like if a member of your organization is being treated like shit and excluded in your meetings, that is not an outside issue. That is your fucking problem and you need to clean it up. And if you don't clean it up, you will become irrelevant. You know, my generation is probably the last generation that will tolerate that. And I only tolerated it for two and a half years. Uh, the Gen Z ones, when they come in, you know, when, when they get done with the, the big bad drugs and they land, and they are presented with a reading card that says this is a fellowship of men and women, we'll stand up and walk out. 
And then where are you going to get your pound in the pot? Then where are you going to get your newcomers to be codependent on? Where will they be? And I'm mad about it. I'm not mad about it because I got hurt. And I'm not mad about it because I got excluded. And I'm not mad about it because the people that I trusted most with my secrets turned out to be transphobic cunts. Um, I'm mad about it because there is incredible potential in that program. And there was a time in my life where it probably saved me. Definitely saved me. And you are fucking breaking it. The dickheads are breaking it. The traditions at this point, 80 odd years after they were written, are going to break it. Um, because we live in a world now where equality laws are getting passed and they're getting enforced and they're getting enforced with legal actions and some big, big fines. Um, and so are safeguarding laws, which the fellowships are not in line with. And it's going to take one big case and the whole thing starts to crumble. And it will, it will result in the deaths of people who are experiencing addiction. And the fellowships have the opportunity to fix that. They've been presented with the opportunity to fix it. They have been warned about the potential consequences if they don't. And they are willfully choosing not to act. And I've sat on the committee meetings where, where the major players of the UK NA have laughed at the motions designed to include people like me, held it up as an example of a joke motion that would never pass. Um, and I've experienced meetings that I helped establish, run, paid for out of pocket, bought literature for, that have then voted to exclude people like me. Um, and I know what happened to me is not unique. And I know that a lot of the people who've experienced things like that will not speak out about it because they still feel that they need the program to live. And they are not in a position where they can burn those bridges. But I fucking love a bridge fire. <laughs> um, I accepted when I left NA that I was never going back. And I was never going back whether I was right or whether I was wrong. And I was never going back, even if the alternative was that I was going to die of an overdose the way they told me that I would. Because I think when you've lived the kind of life I've lived and compromised yourself in as many ways as I've compromised myself, there comes a point where you have to ask, what am I willing to do? What am I willing to risk? What am I willing to die for? What am I willing to live for? What can I tolerate being complicit in? And those answers started to become very, very clear to me around the time that the people that I had trusted really turned on me and showed me what they thought of me. And showed me the worst parts of themselves. See, I get really angry when I talk about this stuff. Um, and if you see loads and loads of like jumpy cuts, it's because there was things that I said that I know are not true to who I am or who I want to be. They are, they are true to the inner child who sometimes needs to take the reins and lash out a little bit. Um, so it's good that I say them, but it's not 
necessary for me to put them on YouTube. <laughs> um, I don't see it as censoring myself, I see it as being mindful and responsible and trying to be balanced. Yeah, it's coming up. At the end of this month, it'll be a year since I left NA. Um, and I've learned more about myself in the last year than I did while I was in NA. But it's been learning that probably wouldn't have been possible without those two and a half years there. Um, which is a strange, conflicting feeling to have. And, you know, during that year, I've done loads and loads of work on healing from my childhood trauma, which was the thing that was holding me back. But then I've had some further work to do on the trauma of being in NA, which was a, a lesser trauma, but it was also a fresher trauma. Um, and reflecting back over these episodes, you know, um, Katie and, and B, the B team in general, has been an amazing part of that healing journey. Um, looking back further to the earlier episodes I did, you know, the fact that me and, and AKA Mandy Lee left together has been really helpful as a source of support. My parents and the experience they had of their, their life and life after the Jehovah's Witnesses have been amazing and it's really bonded us, I think, being able to talk about this stuff. Um, but I still always feel like I'm walking a tightrope where I need to speak openly about some of what happened but I need to do it in a way that doesn't throw innocent people under the bus and air their dirty laundry. I need to do it in a way that doesn't stop people accessing a source of help that they might need at that time of their life, the way that I did. And I need to do it in a way that is constructive and focused on a solution because I believe that the 12 step programs can be brought in line with the things that have changed since they were written and they can grow and they can learn from new evidence and they can learn from the experiences of their members who are feeling shut out and excluded. And they can become something amazing because when they were created, they were something amazing. People who behaved the way that we do in active addiction were just seen as irredeemable and broken and, and left to rot. And the 12-step programs began the process, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous initially began the process of starting to treat addiction as a health problem. Um, and if they got some things wrong in that process, that is okay. That's the beginning of the process. The place where they fucked up is that that didn't get treated as the beginning of the, of the process. It got treated as the end. And and in all those decades since, nothing has changed, but the world has changed, people have changed, and our understanding of the human mind has just exploded with, with new understanding and, and research and knowledge. And I don't know what would be worse for for the fellowships to endure, but never grow beyond what they started as, or for them to just fade out of relevance and, and disappear. And with it, that source of community and, and support that so many people still really benefit from, even though I, I don't. Um, and so there's a lot of complicated feelings in me and, and some of it is grief, I think, for 
the chosen family I thought I'd found and and what that became. And some of it is anger. Some of it is really, really justified anger. And some of it is also really huge gratitude um, for experiences I had that I never knew were possible for me. And some of it is just focused on the future. Um, because the person that I was two years ago would would not really like the person that I am now because I drink and I'm not in NA. The person I was two years before that would not like the person that I was two years ago or the person that I am now because the person I was two years ago didn't use heroin and the person I am now doesn't do it either. They just drink and that's boring. Um, and the person that I was two years before that would wonder what the hell had gone wrong because they were just still trying to figure out what gender they were. They didn't ask for any of this drama. <laughs> so who knows, who knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, that's my biggest focus now. It is. Um, and these little outbursts are part of the steps that I'm taking to get there. Sort of picking through all the tangled threads of my thoughts and ironing them out and learning where they lead and deciding where I want them to lead and then going there. And that was very much how I untangled my gender and reached this point of, to use a bit of 12-step language, this point of serenity that I'm at with it, um, where I don't need to know what it is and I don't need to know how it works and I don't need to know why. I just need to vibe with it. Um, like Stevie was saying, go with the flow. And this journey that I'm on with unpicking my feelings about what recovery, what addiction means to me, I think that's going to be a lifelong process, the same way that my gender has been. Um, I don't anticipate having all the answers soon, but I really hope you'll join me on the journey of trying to find them and sharing some of the ideas other people have along the way. Which brings me to where I wanted to wrap up because I have a little bit of news and a little bit of uncertainty for you. Um, so this is the end of season one of Not In Vain. It's been a short season and it's been an experimental one and it's my first podcast and I've learned loads. I've had an amazing time doing it. So I want to take that learning and I want to let it breathe for a bit. Um, so I'm taking a break. The aim at the moment is that I will not be recording any new episodes for the rest of June and at least the first two weeks of July. Um, during that time, I am going to get in touch with a few potential guests, get some people lined up and get some things outlined. I'm also going to rehash the format. I feel like these episodes are, I feel like these episodes are quite information dense and maybe are not giving people what they want from a podcast, which is generally a little bit more easy listening and broken up a little bit. So I'm going to have a little look at what I can do to tweak that and make it a bit more fun. Um, I also, during that time, will be working with AKA Mandy Lee, who you might remember from episode two. Um, she announced on that episode the upcoming release of her album, Better Days. Um, I am her hardworking assistant, publicist, sometimes manager, though I really didn't sign up for that one, photographer, videographer, and a few other things. So as you can imagine, the pre-release window for her album is going to be a wild time for me. Um, I'm going to have quite a lot of work to do on that, and so I need to free up a few hours. Um, as well as that, I would like to create some more conventionally draggy content for my page. So look out for lip sync, dance, and a whole lot of gay stuff. Um, 
So yeah, so it's not the end, not at all. So unfortunately, if you are one of the loyal regular listeners of this podcast, you are about to do a little bit of waiting. Um, in the meantime, though, please do keep following. Please do keep liking and sharing my, my posts. I'll be releasing more of the Not In Vain One Milliliter Eclipse as well from all of the existing episodes so far. So if you're looking for something bite-sized with viral potential to share on Facebook, please do give them a share because it makes my day. Thank you. Um, and if you have any suggestions or requests of anything in particular you would like me to focus on in future episodes, um, I want to do some episodes sort of really focusing in on specific topics and recruiting guests with that in mind. So if there's anything you'd like to hear me chat about with a friend, then pop it in a comment, pop it in a message. If you know me in the real world, come and buy me a drink in a bar and bribe me. That always works. Um, you know, just uh, let me know what you like. But, um, but I've got some ideas too, and I'm really excited to see where season two is going to take us. It's going to be the best one yet. So thank you so much for listening, and I will leave it there. So join me next time here on Not In Vain, whenever that might be, for whatever I might present you with. Goodbye.